Hello and welcome to the Maidcast, the official podcast of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, a series of lectures on video game history as part of the Maid's ongoing effort to preserve history through the teaching and displaying playable exhibits of rare games and consoles. While life in the time of COVID has forced us to close our doors, the support of people like you has allowed us to continue to bring history to you through lectures like the one you'll hear in a few minutes. My name is Miles. I'm Red. I'm Chun. And I'm Anthony. This week, we'll get an in-depth breakdown of the Atari 2600. After that, we'll close up with some great game talk. But first, let's talk about news of the week. So it has come to the time that the two main new console by Sony and Microsoft has already come out. I don't know any of you have get hands on it already, but one of my friends no. actually have one. That's lucky him. The reason we found out about that is when me and the other friends are playing PS4, we saw there's a special icon in his login status which shows and tells everyone that he is using PS5. Give him a call and ask whether, hey, how do you feel about the PS5? And he said it's pretty fast because of the SSD and reading everything is fast, very fast. It's too fast that to a point that he, he just haven't get used to it yet because he used to use those loading time to have some food or just do some other thing else. And now he just he, he just <laughs> mm-hmm. can't do any of those. And the problem is he's using a PS5. There's 4K output and high quality video output, and everything is very fast. But the problem is monitor in his room. It's still in the age of PS1. That's that's his word. So ah. <laughs> yeah, that's what got him. <laughs> Good old 480p polygons. Yeah, we all telling him the next thing you gotta buy is a 4K monitor. You, you're not gonna waste that thing. <laughs> oh, but that's I'd love to get a PS5, but I'm also hesitant. Well, one, I can't afford it. Two, uh, it's kind of massive, and I'd rather wait till the inevitable slim release, or at least a, a holiday bundle next year. <laughs> Give me some more games. Yeah, I also have a habit that. I don't usually rush for the first series of the console because from the past experience, it tends to get a little bit problematic sometimes. Mm. I mean, we got some times that they, they're usually good, but I will be waiting until I see a very good game that I really, really want to play until I buy the console. That's usually my shopping habit for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do got to say, my PS4 is a launch day PS4 uh, oh. that I got with oh. my friend. And I yes, it is very loud and I... It, it whines at me, but it runs great. I have no issue with performance, but the fan is uh, <laughs> very, it lets me know it's there. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I'm still here. I'm still working. <laughs> right. Right. You make me think about my P- my PS4 Pro. So um, I have a very bad habit that I usually put my cup of water on that PS4 Pro. And what? Yeah, it's not a very what? good habit, but what I found <laughs> about that, it actually, it actually <laughs> heat up my water to be from cold water to warm water. <laughs> Well, so it's, it's actually quite a good function in these cold days. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's a strategy. I, yeah. Yeah, I mean, th- I guess that like that's thinking outside the box. I mean, talk about leveling up your play. <laughs> they could put that on the box. It's like helps make tea. It's not bad. It's <laughs> yeah, it's warming up your room in, in winter. Yeah, that's a, a good point. I don't have a I have some here. Canadian friends who, who do that in purpose. So. Oh, just place the console next to them and point yeah, the phone at ju- them. Yeah. yeah, they just turn it on and say, hey, yeah. it's warm. <laughs> it's like, I don't need to buy a space heater. I just need to bring yeah. my PlayStation in bed with me. Yeah. <laughs> Save energy. Definitely. Yeah. That's what it is. I mean, you joke, but that is a viable solution. I work in a very small room in here. Um, it's about <laughs> yeah. 10 foot square. And my computer puts out a lot of heat when I leave it on and play games on it like all day. So I don't really need a space heater. I just need to close the windows, pull down the drapes. And, you know, yeah, that's after a, a couple fight. hours, I'm, I'm toasty. 
It's great. Yeah, that's that's a good idea. I mean, that's also something I should try. I have this like I have my new computer, but I haven't really tried anything to force it to work super hard yet. Mm-hmm. And I ran Doom on the play on my the latest Doom Doom Eternal. Oh, that's a good one. It looks amazing, and the texture is great. It runs fantastically. I want to try and boost everything up to. I want to get like mods to make it go crazy beyond the the hell level, mm-hmm. the expert level graphics. <laughs> I, w- I also wish you could downgrade graphics in Doom to like original Doom graphics as like a special mod for each level. I think that would make the playable experience uh, that much better. I remember they did that in um, the Halo Anniversary Edition. Ooh. Like for the first for the remake of the first Halo game that they came out with. I don't know however many years ago. They had just a button you could press on the controller that would swap between modern, I think it was like Halo 3.5 era graphics, ODST or Reach, mm-hmm. and original um, Halo 1 graphics. So it was just kind of a like a, a fun like swap between to see how far you've gone or to see how far the technology has come. That's really cool. I kind of wish more games would do that just mm-hmm. to, yeah, that's, sh- just that's to show you just really like cool. a little Easter egg. Is that all for the news, you guys? Anything interesting else you guys want to bring up? Well, to segue off the the PlayStation Five, um, you've all heard of Michael B. Jordan, the actor. He's played a mm-hmm. uh, Killmonger and Black Panther, and also mm-hmm. uh, he starred in Creed. Yeah, he did a uh, paid partnership with PlayStation and posted a, a post on Instagram, and it reads here. I have it up on my screen. I've been on PlayStation from the jump, and the experience gets better and better. Gameplay and graphics are fire fire emoji we got to figure out how to bring back marvel versus capcom 2 mm. so remaster marvel versus capcom 2 that's kind of what i'm taking from it uh i mean they just they just remastered demon souls and if the trailer another really cool it would be nice to have another you know bring another fighting game up into the pantheon other than just street fighter 5 and smash smash is great don't get me wrong don't hate Smash community. We love you. We love you at the Maid. You know it. We, I mean, like the Maid has hosted numerous, numerous uh, Smash nights, both Melee and sixty four. So, don't at me, community. Man, I miss you know playing. You know I miss playing Smash. <laughs> yeah, online. My is friends not the keep same. bugging me to get a, a Switch, but we'll wait to see Nintendo's Switch two mm-hmm. uh, next year. Uh, fingers crossed. We can only hope. We can only hope. And with that, I think it's probably about time that we let Alex intro the breakdown of the Atari 2600. And we'll hear, we'll get back with you guys in a little bit after some history and some context. Thank you. Stick around. Hello out there, and welcome to the Maidcast's meaty, centery, sandwichy goodness. I am Alex Handy, as always in the middle of the podcast, here to explain some sort of history for you. Uh, Last time we talked about the Atari 2600, the VCS, we sort of skipped the Fairchild Channel F, which I will talk about briefly right now. uh, And we will go on to talk about the technical details of the Atari 2600 to explain a little bit of why games on that system look the way they do. But before we do, I do want to rewind a little bit. Uh, Last week's episode started in 1977. 
We're going to rewind to about 1974, 1975, and we're going to talk about the Fairchild Channel F. This was a device that invented a lot of the things that we take for granted in consoles in the 80s and 90s, but was basically unknown. It didn't do very well. It was also the first video game console to be designed by an African-American engineer, Gerald Lawson, who actually also had, holds the distinction of being the gentleman to design the first video game cartridge and the first computer processor-driven video game home console system. That's because Fairchild was a semiconductor company. And so when the idea for a game console was first surfaced, Gerald Lawson had a whole lot of cheap semiconductors at his fingertips. And well, maybe not a whole lot. He had one semiconductor, cheap semiconductor at his fingertips uh, in a time when the, the CPU, the central processing unit, the sort of putting transistors inside of a piece of silicon and making them very, very small was a brand new thing. I mean, the microprocessor was a completely fantastical futuristic idea at the time. The idea of a computer around that microprocessor was even more fantastical. Uh, I don't know if anybody here has ever seen movies like Weird Science or uh, there's another, uh, I can't even remember the name of the other one about computers, but like in the early 80s, there were movies where basically the instigating event was computer. Oh, they're, they're, they created a woman like Frankenstein in their bedroom because computer or his whole house is taken over and his whole life is dominated because computer. It was almost magical. They were very mystical and magical. And so when Gerald Lawson decided to actually put one of these chips inside of a home video game console, it was a very revolutionary idea. The only thing that had even been near that concept was the Odyssey the Magnavox Odyssey, which we talked about two episodes ago. And as you remember, that's a very, very primitive console, which does not have any computing power and is 100% analog. So when Gerald Lawson designed the Fairchild Channel F, he basically set the mold for what the Nintendo Entertainment System, for what the 2600, for the 7800, the 5200, the Sega Master System, the Sega Genesis, the Super Nintendo. He set that model. He's the first guy to do that. And the Fairchild Channel F is a terrific collector's item if you can find one. They have these big, bright yellow cartridges. The games are extremely primitive. They're things like tic-tac-toe or pong-ish hockey kind of games. In fact, it actually has pong built into it. There are four different variations of games built into the console. The other innovation of the Fairchild Channel F is that the controller itself is a, it's a stick that you hold in one hand and out of the top is an analog joystick. That basically imagine like an analog joystick off of uh, a Sony PlayStation controller. Now take that and put a bath, uh, a toilet paper tube underneath of just that stick, and that's the controller. You push it down to click. So that push down on the PlayStation analog controller was created by Gerald Lawson on the Channel F and was never really replicated by any other consoles. In fact, controller design really did not make any significant advances between the Fairchild Channel F and like the Nintendo Entertainment System. Now, yes, there was innovation and there were new controllers. Don't get me wrong. You've got the Intellivision with its number pad and the side buttons. You've got the uh, 5200 with its limp sort of stick controller and, and it had a number pad. There were a lot of attempts at what is the controller going to look like. But at the end of the day, it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of innovation to be had above the Fairchild controller. The only thing that I would have done is I would have put the button on the side instead of maybe push down on the stick. But other than that, it's a joystick. And the 2600 just adds that button on the side. And then after that, we see all these very strange controllers for, as I said, the Intellivisions and, and the ColecoVisions, the things with numbers on them, where they're just they're going down the wrong path. That's not the way controllers are going to go, Right. And the way I would categorize it is basically after the VCS, we get a lot of people running off in the wrong direction on controllers until the Nintendo Entertainment System shows up and basically re-implements the controller that was used on some of its Game & Watch devices. Uh, but we are getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, I've already taken five minutes to talk about Gerald Lawson. He deserves a lot more time to speak about. Maybe I will have his son on a future episode uh, if I can track him down. But for now, I would like to move on to the Atari 2600. The VCS, the Stella. Uh, as we talked with John Demian last week, uh, you 
probably got the impression that the 2600 was considered to be like this amazing thing. It's this unbelievable thing that could bring arcade games into your home. And it absolutely was. There's really no arguing that at the time of the release of the 2600, that it was not revolutionary. It, uh, it was utterly beyond every other system out there. And it was designed to play games that were beyond every other system out there. When you look at the Atari 2600, you need to understand that it was designed to play two games and two games only. It was designed to play Pong and Combat. Those are the only games that they actually sat down and designed the system around. There were additional systems games that were released that sort of needed things like that. Uh, Indy 500 had, had to have its own paddles, for example. Like I'm not saying that there weren't other things designed, but initially when they sat down at Atari and said, we're going to make this thing, they built the hardware specifically so that it could render Pong and combat. That's it. They didn't think anybody outside of Atari would be making games for it. They knew they would be making games for it, but they were pretty sure they would all be, you know, arcade games, simple ports. They did not really consider the idea that the Atari 2600 would become a household item, like a toaster, like everybody would have one. They did not consider the idea that there would be millions and millions and millions of games published. They did not consider the idea that Atari would be making millions of dollars off of games that an individual person programmed, designed, and created, and then got like a standard $30,000 a year paycheck for. There were a lot of things that they did not consider when they created the Atari 2600. But one of the things they really did consider, and this is, I was hoping to have Joe DeCure on this episode. I will try to get him in the future. Uh, but Joe DeCure and Al Alcorn and some other engineers at Atari designed a chip that was essential to the existence of this device. And this was probably the most revolutionary thing inside of the Atari 2600, the, the, the 6501, or it's not a 6502, but it's like a super slimmed down 6502 pre-6502 chip. It's an MOS chip, which was already in other devices. So there's not like innovation there. The joystick itself is neat, kind of flimsy, fall apart, don't last very long. Uh, not so much of an innovation. It's a great design thing, certainly from a design standpoint. It's a beautiful device. But the Atari 2600 joystick, I would not call like this great, amazing, revolutionary thing that just lasted for decades, like the NES controller or anything like that. What was innovative on this device, frankly, aside from all of the other you know minor innovations, the big innovation was this television interface. Oh, God, what does TIA stand for? I'm going to have to look this up. Excuse me, folks. I'm sorry. Uh, television interface adapter, the TIA chip. And why that was important is because on the old TVs, they're basically an electron gun that goes from top to bottom and it goes left to right, right to left, left to right, left to right. You know, it's, it's this thing that just sort of goes and draws the entire television screen that you're watching and it does it every second. It does it like 60 times a second, 60 hertz. So 60 times a second, that electron beam is drawing every single pixel on the screen that you see. Not really pixels on a TV, but every single thing that you see on the TV, it's drawing it from the top, like in a row, like left to right, right to left, left to right, left to right, left to right, left to right, left to right. drawing it all the way down. Like you were mowing a lawn. I like that as a, uh, a metaphor. So in order for the Atari 2600 to be able to interface with this thing that literally is like shooting colors 60 times a second, thousands of times every 160th of a second, like it has to redraw the whole screen. So the computer has to be able to keep up with that. And that's the kind of 60 times a second refresh rate at 1977 computing power is difficult to keep up with. It is very difficult to be able to tell it what it should be drawing exactly as it goes across the screen. Today, what we use is called a frame buffer, where we go into RAM or video RAM on your GPU, and you say, this is what's going on the screen. The next frame is this, and you draw the whole frame in RAM, and then it just pushes the whole frame pre-done onto screen, and then you do it again. You push the next one on the screen. The Atari 2600 has no frame buffer. The Atari 2600 goes and writes each and every shot of that electron gun exactly at the time when it is shooting the electrons. So 
as the electron gun is drawing the upper left dot on the screen, let's say there's a yellow dot, upper left-hand corner, like the, we're on a yellow playing field, the whole screen's yellow. So it's got to draw a yellow dot, upper left-hand corner of the screen. The Atari 2600 says, yellow dot, yellow dot, yellow dot, yellow dot, yellow dot, yellow dot. It has no idea what the whole screen looks like. It just knows exactly what to tell the electron gun to fire exactly at this moment in time and the next moment in time. There is no frame buffer. There's nothing in RAM about what's on screen. Everything moving on screen is being calculated completely in real time in RAM. And let me tell you, so it has 128 bytes of RAM. So yes, it did have 1024 bits, right? So that's nothing. That's, that's not even a kilobyte. That's not even enough to like put your address into ASCII and encode it. You, maybe you could. Maybe you could. That's, that's, that's kind of close. But that brings up another topic on the 2600. There's no ASCII. There's no character set. There's nothing. You, you, it's sticks and stones. And if I can go back to the TIA chip and the way it interfaces with the television, and this is, if you're interested in this, I highly recommend that you read Racing the Beam by Ian Bogost and Nick Montefort. It is spectacular. It is a quick read. It will take you a weekend, and you will close that book, and you will say, how did they ever make games for this thing? Because it explains in very excruciating detail exactly how the 2600 works. And one of the things that I learned from that book is, remember I'm talking about drawing the screen from left to right like you're reading a book, and then turning around, going back, like you're mowing a lawn, right? You're like, going one way, we're going the other way, and we're going down the screen each time. The way that you draw that screen is not actually, in fact, the way that it works is you go and count from left to right, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and, you know, yellow dot, yellow dot, all those yellow dots, eight, then you stop. Then you go the other way, starting at the center of the screen, although not quite, a little bit, a little bit to the left of the center screen, and you count from... First, you've counted from left to right. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Then you count from right to left. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. You count backwards. So you're drawing from left to right on the first line. Then you're drawing from right to left on the first line. And then you go back and you do one, two, three, four, drawing from left to right again on the first line. And then you have drawn one of the top lines at half of the screen. You've only drawn a line across half of the screen. And then you got to do it again. So this is really hard to describe without like a graphic. So please go look this up if you're confused. But literally what I'm saying is that there are eight bits from left to right, which are corresponding to the dots that you're drawing. And then there are eight bits from right to left that meet up with those existing first eight bits. And then there are another four bits going left to right at the end of those eight bits. And then you're halfway across the screen. And then you mirror it. You don't draw the other half of the screen. You mirror the background. So all of the backgrounds on the Atari 2600 have to be symmetrical and i know that they all aren't because there are tricks that you can do to make them not symmetrical and people figure that out later but the way it draws backgrounds is by you draw half the screen and then you mirror it and remember when i'm saying you're drawing those one two three four five six seven eight that's just one line at the very top of the screen a line of pixels and then you go down one you do the next line of pixels and again it's not a straight across i cannot stress how like complicated and annoying that would be imagine if you have to paint a house and you're like you're painting from left to right and then you gotta stop go to the other side of the house start painting left to right from right to left then you gotta meet in the middle. Like, it's insane. It's such an obnoxious little gotcha. And I cannot imagine how the developers dealt with it. Uh, some of the other problems that you have on the 2600 is the fact that it can only draw three sprites. It can draw player one, player two, and ball. The third sprite is called ball because they only expect it to be able to play pong and combat. That third sprite is usually what's used for the the, the projectile in combat. There are some cases where you can get two sprites on the screen for the ball, but that uh, anything above one of e e any of these things requires shifting. What you would, uh, God, I can't even remember the proper term for this. Somebody will correct me, I'm sure. But basically, this is used on the Nintendo Entertainment System as well, where you draw two frames. Uh, one frame has the ghost on it. One frame has no ghost on it. Uh, and then you draw on that no frame, you put another ghost somewhere else. So 
it's it's why things flicker on the Nintendo Entertainment System or why the game Freeway on the Atari 2600 has extreme flicker on the sprites because it's only drawing half the sprites one frame and then the other half of the sprites the next frame and it changes them back and forth. And because it's doing it so fast, you kind of don't notice, but you do notice the flicker. So there were hacks that had to be done in order to be able to draw more than one shot on the screen. It's, it's uh, kind of difficult to even con- conceive of how limiting this would have been. And yet some of the first games that were released for the system already took uh, that, that concept of player one, player two, a ball, and like took it on, stood it on its head. So for example, Joe DeCure is also the guy who wrote Video Olympics, one of the pack-in titles for the 2600, which was basically Pong with lots of variations. In that game, there are more than one player sprites. There are paddles that are like four or five paddles or a couple rows of paddles. And you know, Joe was able to do this by keeping them as the same sprites, but basically like wrapping them around, making the big long lines so they rotate the same. And there's all sorts of hacks that you can do and clever tricks to get more out of this machine than anybody thought possible. And let me be very clear here. This device is sticks and stones, absolute sticks and stones when it comes to technology. A very, very, very primitive device. All of the consoles that ship after the 2600 run rings around it logistically and, and technologically. They just just murder it when it comes to performance and graphics and sound and capabilities. However, the 2600 remains the king of this era, and it actually goes on to be one of the longest-lived consoles of all time. I believe the PlayStation 2 has overtaken it, but the 2600 was in production, and you could buy new games for it from basically 77 to 92, 93, somewhere in there. It was a good long time. I even remember picking up a copy of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Oh, no, Raiders of the Lost Ark for the 2600 in, like, uh, 87, 88, busting out the old 2600 because I didn't have a NES at the time. Uh, it was uh, it was an incredible console for what it had inside of it. It was absolutely sticks and stones. Anybody who has ever made an Atari 2600 game deserves to have a bright, shiny metal pinned on their chest. I don't care how good the game is. I don't care if you can't even play it. If you got anything to come up on that machine, you're a god. You had to program it in a very limited form of assembly language. You had absolutely no RAM to work with. You had to manage all of the RAM by yourself. So, you know, memory, (laughs) imagine colliding memory in 120 bytes of space like that's ridiculous so the 2600 really did set sort of the tone for everything that came after it in terms of good and bad things i mean the the shovelware state of the industry in the early 80s that led to the 1983-84 crash really can be directly pinned on the 2600 and actually not on the 2600 device not even on atari but on the market around it right just like with What's going on on phones right now, if you go to your phone and you try to find a game to download, there are a billion games. There are 25 copies of the same game with different names distributed by different companies because they're all squatting on some name like, oh, it's Player Unknown's Brutal Grounds. Ooh, hey, that looks good. You know, like this is kind of what was going on in the 2600, but much, much less blatant and much less successful. One of the reasons that the games industry crashed so hard is that companies and people all over the world were going, they gotta get in on this video game thing. This is huge. This is so amazing. People are making millions of dollars and only one guy has to make the thing and you just publish this and you send it out and you just print money. So when everybody and their mother's getting into a market, that's always a good indication that the bubble's about to burst. And that's exactly what happened to the 2600 in uh, 83, 84. I'm sure you all have heard about the various uh, console games that have been buried in Alamogordo, New Mexico, which uh, technically belonged to the city of Alamogordo because it's their dump. So they're the ones selling those games on eBay, by the way. Uh, but, you know, the crash was basically a result of a system that could not push a whole variety of games 
getting a whole variety of games, right? There's some great games on 2600, don't get me wrong, but the vast majority of games in that library are unplayable garbage. And I'm sorry to say that. I usually don't like to dunk on old systems and old games. Every, every one of those games, somebody put their whole heart and soul into and took a lot of time to build. But the unfortunate truth is that a lot of the games on the 2600 are literally unplayable garbage. There is just no getting around it. Now, that's not to say that all games aren't. The combat, I think, is one of the best games ever made. You can still play combat today, and it is a hoot. It is a terrific two-player game, right? Like, the arcade ports in the 2600 are terrific. Frogger's great. Dick Dug's even good. You know, Asteroids, Defender, all those games. Space Invaders, good games. Nothing wrong with any of them. But if we're going to talk about, like, Chase the Chuck Wagon or Halloween or Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I mean, there's a million other games on the 2600 that are just super disappointing. And I can tell you, this was not something that just we just realized in the 90s. I can very distinctly remember playing the 2600 in the early 80s and going to a friend's house and they had stacks of games. And it's like, wow, three of these are fun. And the rest of them are, I don't even know what to do. I, I can't even get the game to be in. When I got Raiders of the Lost Ark for the 2600, I, I don't think I figured out how to get anything going in that game. It was so complicated. And it used both joysticks. And it is so far ahead of the technology that it is implemented upon. It's it's a shame. That game could have been really interesting on another platform, but it's on the 2600 and it just, it's inscrutable. It's like trying to read a foreign language in a different character set. It's just awful. So uh, one last thing I think I will touch on. I remember before I said there's no ASCII set in the 2600. And uh, in fact, there's no embedded characters or images of any kind. Uh, one of the things you should go look up are the Distella maps, D-I-S-S. T-E-L-L-A? Maybe there's only one else. The Distella maps by Ben Fry are terrific. They, some of these hang in the New York MoMA. And what they do is he prints out the source code for a 2600 game, draws lines to all the jumps for the go-tos, and then renders uh, whatever graphics there are. Not really render. Uh, he turns them into blocks. And the way the 2600 graphics works is literally like dot, no dot. So you're drawing on a line of, of a byte, right? You're like, one is a dot, zero is not a dot. So in the 2600 source code, you can see the graphics if you lay it out. Right. Like you can visually see the graphics. Compare that to something like a Super Mario Brothers. You can't see anything in that source code. That's just all, you know, assembly language code. It's all 6502 assembly. There's no, the, the graphics are all rendered as data. On the 2600, the graphics are registered as dot or not a dot. You're drawn with dots and not dots, right? Dot hole, dot hole, 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 dot. And that is how primitive that device was. And that just, Again, that just shows you how far we have come. You cannot look at a piece of source code today and see graphics in it. That hasn't been a thing for a good 40, 45 years. So with that lovely thought, I would like to hand it back to the gentleman in the studio. Fellas? So what are you all playing this week? <laughs> um, well, Jesus, we've been playing the Bible game on for PC, for personal computer, uh, like you told us to. Sir? Wonderful, my child. <laughs> oh, thank you, God. <laughs> I appreciate your approval. Anthony is losing it. <laughs> I'm just looking at him. All the, the power's gone to his head. He's crying. Oh, Where do you got <laughs> we, we need to stop him. That could be a secondary segment where we ask God some questions. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's actually a good idea. I don't know. Maybe... We should put that to our Patreon supporters. Um, uh, ask us the question. Do you want us to ask God anything about the upcoming predictions for the gaming industry? Um, how do you feel that this year of COVID has affected or anything? Uh, get back to us, Patreon supporters. We love your support and we love all of you who listen to us. So uh, let us know what you want us to ask God. Um, <laughs> I mean, well, 
there is technically a way that you could just ask him, and it's I, I think it's called uh, praying. I, I don't know praying. if I'm saying that right, but um, <laughs> no. Recently, I've been playing the new spooky hotness of the month. Uh, I was playing Phasmophobia with some friends. Oh, uh, oh, I was I was watching some live streams of that. I'm like, this game. I saw some of my friends playing that. But it is very funny. That's um, it's an inch. Like it's so interesting to see that there's a multiplayer spooky game yeah that's yeah i like that a lot i don't find it particularly frightening but it is just a lot of fun to hang out with friends and shout at ghosts because because it has the it has the um the voice recognition in it so you know when you're talking to your friends over the in-game voice chat the ghost can hear you Mm. and will respond to you and you know get more angry the more you shout at it and so we have just been extremely abusive to these ghosts like it's not even funny it's just (laughs) We've been really mean, but we've had we've had so much fun. I wonder about if they do record these in-game conversations. It's like, God, I if hope that's not. part of the agreement oh. to play the game. Um, just all the horrible beratement, oh, all man. the horrible ghost beratement. Yeah, that, that would be very. No, it's a it's a well-made game. It's a bit janky because it's also I think it's built for VR, and none of us are playing it in oh. VR. So you know, all the controls are a bit weird. Uh, the the models are a bit funny looking. All the animations are are a bit janky, but it's still it's it's a solid game in there, and it's a lot of fun to play with friends. It's a lot of the from what I remember, um, a lot of the ghosts are sort of procedurally generated. Yeah. So you you go into a level, and basically the ghost is like built out of these components of oh it's a djinn or oh it's a specter or whatever. Um, and it's given like a randomly assigned name that it will respond to. And each of those ghost types has different effects and different behaviors. So, you know, you need to learn how to tackle a banshee versus learning how to you know fight off a demon like they they do different things and um can only be found out by certain like different items and so once you've got all three of those items um for those of you who haven't played or don't know what i'm talking about once you've once you've basically you're not you're not there to kill the ghost or you know destroy it or whatever or exercise the house you're there to just find out what it is and get out before you die no okay so it's not like ghostbuster but you just it's not ghostbusting (laughs) you're like the team who goes in to find out what the ghost is so that the ghostbusters can come in after you and do it got it so it's a lot of just sort of walking around in very dark places with very poor poorly made flashlights and um uh you know radios that's always seems to be the case uh in any horror game yeah there's never a working flashlight. I mean, what if the power goes out? Do you, don't you people know that you're supposed to have ready lanterns or candles or and a stash of things to, you know, keep them running? Power just always seems to go out in these places and they're never equipped to never ready for it. A power yeah. outage. Disaster preparedness is just abysmal. Yeah, that that well, would I mean, ruin I guess the plot. The of the <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> No, it but wouldn't we be fun it... to watch. It's like, oh, the power goes out. Hold on, let me go turn on the generator. It's like, oh, we're okay now. Right. Cool. Oh, never mind. It's fine. <laughs> Everything's back to normal. Yeah. <laughs> no, actually, a lot of these abandoned buildings do have lights that you can turn on, but the ghost doesn't like that. Oh, so will he turn them back off? Uh, the ghost will turn the power back off, so you have to go find oh. the generator and turn it back on. Um, and you are safer if you just stand there in the dark than if you turn on the lights and then go into the dark room. Because the ghost will be mm. angrier if the lights are on, mm. so it's a it's an interesting sort of balancing act between being comfortable and actually being able to see the game and being able to play the game and getting out with your life. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's good fun. 
Anyway, thanks for listening to the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment's official podcast. If you have any of those questions that you'd like to have answered, give us an email at shoot us an email at info at We'd like to send out a big thank you to everyone who donated recently and to our Patreon supporters who keep the maid afloat. Patreon donors will be getting this podcast one week before it goes public on the major streaming services, and we'll continue that with future episodes every week. Till then, I'm Red. I'm Chin. I'm Anthony. And I'm Miles. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. Sweet. Sweet.